Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening, and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Justice Magic, Binaural Production Engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of Sound, uh, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and our new monthly co-host, Kat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in being a part of this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Gary Wayne. He is the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and he has all kinds of knowledge and wisdom on Nephilim, Genesis 6, conspiracies, giants, aliens, and all other things like that. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, and also the end time. So you want to go end prehistory times. right to the end time? Then, Actually, yeah, let's, yeah let's everything's talk. available to us. Let's go backwards. <laughs> like, is there with the end times? You know, mm-hmm. it has been predicted. God, I, I would say since like the 1980s when I was a kid, there was always somebody out there predicting yeah. when the end of the time yeah. was co- going to happen and why it was going to happen, what was going to be the catalyst of it. Yeah, and every time. I've been disappointed. I'm still here. Yes. Don't listen to people who are predicting specific dates and pointing to Antichrist and false prophet just because somebody new comes on the stage and not every president's going to be Antichrist. And I could, I could give you a whole list of things. I, like you, have been listening to those people since the 80s, and it's like... Why are you doing this? You're always wrong. <laughs> so, um, and, and I'm a fan of prophecy. I mean, I like end time prophecy. And uh, but I think what it does do for for Christians, when uh, like myself, when you have people out there that are, you know, sensationalizing things to make money off of it and doing whatever it says, and then changing it that was a new revelation or whatever that covered up for their mistake and sort of come off as a prophet. And all of these things, they go to discredit Christianity and what prophecy is is all about. And it's not that I don't think the end time is going to happen, because I do. Mm -hmm. And I think we might even be in the fig tree generation. But all the things have to sort of line up in the exact chronological order that Jesus has told us it would happen in. And things can't happen sort of outside that chronological order. Like you can't jump ahead and say, okay, we're into the last three and a half years and Antichrist is going to be, you know, taking power next year because it doesn't work with the chronology and stuff. And you can't eliminate inconvenient passages. You have to include it all, and all it's all got to fit. And so, if you, if you just sort of go back, and what I tell people, and I get a lot of heat for this, I, I mean, I really do, particularly within um, the Christian um, culture, because you have a lot of dogmatists out there that have an end, preconceived end time belief, and they're going to say, don't do it that way because I've, I have a special gift or, or whatever. 
and I'm basing it on scripture. If you don't base everything around what Jesus said, and you don't use all the passages, you're going to get contradictions, and somebody's going to challenge you someday and say, that doesn't work. Have you looked at this? And then you got to come up with all of these these reasons. So do it in a credible way. So do I think we're in the fig tree generation? I think so. But but a fig tree generation is more than, could be 40 years, as the book of the Exodus talks about. It could be 70 years, as the book of the Psalms talks about. Or it could be 120 years, as Genesis 6-3. We don't know how long that generation is. Mm-hmm. And we don't know whether or not it has to take the full generation. The only thing Jesus told us about is, is that there is that specific generation. And one of the key signs is, is that visible, the visible southern kingdom, the remnant of them, which we would know as Israel today, but is in fact would be Judea and a few other tribes, would have to have the possession of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so when you start looking at that, once they have, once the fig tree is in Jerusalem, and that's why Jesus killed the fig tree. And the fig tree in prophecy is the southern kingdom of Judah. Then we might be in that end time scenario. And then we have to look to some of the other overarching signs that he has, which is this is the beginning of sorrows. And then there's a set of catastrophes that are going to get stronger all the way through. And we have to uh, also understand that uh, all of those events will happen within that generation. So there's an order that he gave us, and, and we, need, we need to sort of follow that. So I think when we're looking at end-time prophecy, we can start to look at what those beginning of sorrows are. But we're not, we don't have a world government yet. We don't have a universal religion yet. You don't see the Jewish people sacrificing on a wing or overspreading of the temple, which are just three of some of the main sort of things that have to come about, which are huge op- obstacles before we could even be coming up to the last seven years. So we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. And I like to say, which is a, maybe a poor analogy, you get out over our skis because you're going to go for a fall. Hmm. You, If we're going by what Jesus said, how do we know which things in the Bible Jesus actually said since you know people memorized what he said then wrote it down later on could there have been any type of misinterpretation and then also there's different you know you know all, a lot of you know parts of the Bible are, are, are different people um, apostles telling Jesus's story yes. from their point of view yep. which are also yep. slightly different so how which one how do you know which ones to judge by? Oh, it's a really good question. So the first thing as a Christian, and if you're a non-Christian, you probably won't accept this, um, but it does sort of solidify some of the credibility. So what we're told in the New Testament is, is that the apostles were not to worry about the events as they were witnessing them, that the Holy Spirit would come and help them at the time when it was to be written down. So they would be enveloped by the Holy Spirit to write that down. And you're correct whether or not it's Mark or it's Matthew or it's Luke or it's John. They have similar events in all of those. Not all of them talk about all of the events. John's a little bit different than Mark, Luke, and Matthew. And they have some things in some of those Gospels, but not in others. But what you find out is is there there aren't contradictions in that. They add more information. 
So what you want to be careful of is, is not including all of the relevant passages. So whatever, let's say, event that Matthew is talking about, you have to slide in John, Mark, mm -hmm. and Luke and put it together there and do that all the way through so that you get a better understanding of it. Hmm. Particularly like with the three days of the resurrection, for example, because if you did, you would never have a good Friday. You would have a good Thursday. <laughs> Is there any common denominators <laughs> between those different um, scriptures that, that, that are definitely, you know, that are like pretty much written in stone other than like the, uh, you know, the thing with Israel? In terms of prophecy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, when Jesus gives his oration um, of the events, I like to use Matthew in Matthew 24 and 25. And he gives, uh, I think, the, the most sort of clearest and complete set of the chronology. And then I overlay Mark, which has just a couple of additions in there. And some things are missing, but just a couple things. And then Luke has some interesting things as well. And it just... It just fills in the blanks for you. So I think when you when you look at it from that sort of perspective, it's it's going to fit. But they use similar language in like the order of the events. Like you get this word then that is is happening as he's listing out the events when they're going to happen. And that's the Greek word tote. That means at that time, thereafter, when. So you're not getting a topical topical sort of setting of these events you get a set order because then this happens and then this happens and it fits with the original meaning of greek and the same words in the other gospels uh -huh. and you get in the timing of it you get something in the middle which is the abomination which is at the midpoint of the last seven years and you know when the start is because he's referencing daniel so you have to go back to daniel that's daniel 9:27, where you get the covenant for seven years and then you get that abomination that happens not only in Daniel 9.27, but in Daniel um, <clears throat> 11 and Daniel 12. And then you get Revelation talking about that same set of events. So you can sort of triangulate that as what's in the middle and then what's on both sides. Hmm. So is there any things that we should be looking for? That would the be beginning obvious? of sorrows. Well, what the would that be? The beginning of sorrows. And so what that means in, in language that is talked about in the Old Testament, where you get those same words, and Jesus would be very specific in talking about those words, even though it was recorded in Greek, you're going to get the same words that would have been recorded in Hebrew with the same sort of meanings coming out in, into English through the translation. And that's the birth pains. And that these are four groups of catastrophes that are going to work together and get stronger as they go, so that when you get to the seal judgments, that's 25% destruction of the earth and the people and everything that's in it. The seals are 33%. The wrath would be 100%, except that Jesus steps in to prevent the whole world from being destroyed. So those catastrophes are all the same. And so when you look at what they are, they are wars and rumors of war that are going to be getting stronger. Um, we might see hints of that right now, but we're not seeing wars yeah. of it. But what, well, there's always been war. <laughs> yeah, said. but it's the intensity of the wars that are going to be getting stronger, right? So mm -hmm. you might look at what's shaping up with Putin and Russia mm -hmm. saying that might lead to something, but we're not there yet, right, in terms of that aspect. 
the other ones are earthquakes. Well, earthquakes are getting stronger, but not apocalyptic strong as they will get as you get into the seals, trumpets, and, and bowls. And you have pestilence and famine. And so we have pestilence that is perhaps starting with what's been going on in the world today. And that Babylon, which will be the universal religion, will lead the world astray when it arises with its sorceries, which is the Greek word pharmakia. And sorcerers, it's used four times in four slightly different variations in Revelation, which is pharmakia, pharmakos, pharmakos. And that's the source word for pharmacies from where vaccines come from. And so these birth pains will work together, not individually. So they all have to be going at the same time and getting stronger. And that this is going to be something that's going to bring the world together, not only for a universal religion, but that religion will also sponsor a world government of 10 kings. So, like I said, we're a long ways away from that. We might see it if we are in the fig tree generation, that we're starting to see the first signs of the early birth pains, but there's a lot of birth pains yet to happen. And to understand that in context, I mean, even when we hit what everybody will think at the time is Armageddon with the seal judgments, we're not there yet. Hmm. So why would Jesus warn us about this to begin with? Like, What would his motive be to tell us the future? Is he giving us an opportunity to dodge it? Well, prophecy, as we're told in, in, the, uh, in the Bible, is for the non-believers, not so much the believers, because you have your faith already. But prophecy is designed for people of the faith to talk with people outside the faith about it so that when things kind of happen, you would have maybe credibility and want to dig deeper in, into the faith as opposed to discrediting the faith when you're trying to be a prophet when you're not. Right? Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful with what you're doing with, with prophecy. But the specific reason why he provided it was the, the, the disciples asked them for it. They, you know, they were insistent that they tell us that he tell them when his second coming would be and what the signs were for the end time. So when you get that account being described in Mark 24, Luke, Mark, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 17, and 21, that's the question that he's answering, and he gives a, quite a complete answer to it. Hmm. Could it also, like, like, like if, if this was all put in place, you know, for the non-believer, um, in today's age, we kind of are a little bit more aware, too, about the idea of self-fulfilling prophecy ideas. Like, like, as soon as something is set in a person's mind, that automatically puts it in motion to begin with, because you're creating a bunch of, you have a bunch of people thinking about the whole same thing, which creates an energy, which is automatically going to sort of take on a life of its own. Well, I think that's, that's kind of part of the purpose, that it's not God bringing about the end time. It's the people of the earth that do. So all of these sorrows are contrived. They'll be caused by humankind. And in spite knowing, in spite, despite having all of this knowledge since the beginning of Israel and, of course, being added on to with the New Testament, the world and, and the forces that want to bring about globalism as we see it today, if that is the world government, and then I think it is, but 
we'll have to wait and see whether we're actually in that generation and, and see more of the signs come out, that it's going to happen no matter the warning, no matter the information. And that's kind of the point. We have a free choice to make. And God has even taken away that option that you might say on your day of judgment that, well, why didn't you tell us this would happen? You're there to make a choice, but you didn't give us the information. Well, you might say, well, maybe I didn't get enough information, but that information was made relevant to the world so that you don't have that as an excuse. And that these times are going to happen no matter what, no matter what Christians do, unless the whole world were, were, would convert, which they won't because we have free choice and it can't be imposed. Anybody who's trying to impose the religion and the belief system is working counter to what God wants. But we will have a, a, a universal religion that will be imposed that is completely anti-God. And no matter how, what people do as a whole, it's still going to happen at the ordained times. And so it has to play out because what must take must take place will take place because the Adamites are the solution to the angelic rebellion. So we're the resolution to that problem. And so this has to play out to take care of the, the larger context of that angelic rebellion, which will play out at the end of the end time uh, with the angels going to the lake of fire and with Satan going to the abyss, then you have a millennium that is there in stark contrast to the age previous. And then after that, Satan is released from the abyss. He starts another war. And then he goes to the lake of fire after that. And we move into the future time when humankind will be raised up like angels to be like angels. And we will actually, um, through the resurrections, which happened uh, before the millennium, we'll actually judge those angels um, for the crimes against humanity and against creation that they committed. It's an epic story. It is. <laughs> it's a, and, it's a, and, a, and it's an extraordinary big story. And, you, and But you have to understand the context first. And it starts with that understanding that humans are created as the resolution to something that happened long before. Interesting. It just makes me wonder, if, if, since we, if we already know the end of the story, us humans. Yes. I'm assuming that the angels would also know how the story ends and it would be coming up with a plan to divert that. Well, and they did throughout throughout the past, and that's what the Genesis six conspiracy is about. But there is a there is a threshold where they know that their war is essentially over. But all they have left, because they're not, have been sent to the abyss at this point, or I mean to the uh, to the lake of fire at this point. All they have left is is to lead as many away from God and away from eternity as they can until they go to the lake of fire. So if you look at what I'm talking about, you have a period after Adam is created, and Satan starts to work with the the cash in Eden, and that's the first revenge where you get that fall. Mm -hmm. uh, but God is Alpha Omega, so he lets everything play out through free choice, and Adam and Eve had free choice. They could have eaten from the tree or not. They decided to get the knowledge, but they didn't realize they were not going to have access to the tree of life, so they didn't get that Godhood Satan was was promising. You got the additional knowledge like God, but in trade you lost 
uh, eating from the tree of life, which was giving them immortality in, in the garden. And then there's a creation of uh, the the giants, which is second revenge. And you might want to say there's a, a revenge in there with turning Cain against his brother and committing murder against his brother and following the ways of the, of the pantheon. And all throughout the history, there's this attempt to lead humankind into utter destruction, which we get with the first apocalypse of water, and the second apocalypse is by fire in the end time to destroy humankind. In Genesis 6, they create the giants to do that. And so this whole scenario is the, the, was designed to ensure that humankind wouldn't reach their destiny, and it would justify the angelic revenge. Because if you look at Isaiah 14, he wants to have, Satan wants to have, as the leader of the of the rebellion, a realm on his own, away from God, without the oversight of God, where he can be like God and run it on his own. He never thought he could win, because God is Alpha Omega, he is omnipotent. And he thought that if they destroyed or the destroyed and or had the humans rebel, it would justify their own rebellion, right? Because it doesn't matter who you create, they're going to rebel against you because you're the oppressive God of the Bible. Fast forward this to the time of the New Testament, you have Satan offering uh, Jesus to run the whole world. Um, that doesn't happen. You've got a, a whole bunch of other things that are going on, but here's that threshold I was talking about. And it talks about it in 1 Corinthians that if the angels had understood the resurrection, they wouldn't have had Jesus crucified. And so in 1 Peter 3, while Jesus is in the grave, he is visiting the leaders and the worst of the angels in the abyss and telling them, your rebellion is over. When I resurrect, the end time is assured. There will be the resurrections. Humankind will be the resolution to your rebellion, and they will be like you, and your rebellion has failed. So it's not like they didn't try, but they didn't know everything. But after that, they probably know a lot about what's going to happen in the end time. They just don't want it to happen at the time God wants it to happen. So they're working with the forces that are anti-God in the world to bring about that end time beforehand. And they want to bring out what they call is the counterfeit millennium or their new age because they're trying to deceive humankind and offer a counterfeit to what the, what God has offered. So when you get deep into the differences in end-time prophecy from a biblical and Judaic perspective, from a polytheist perspective, and they all have end-time prophecy, it's the lens that they're looking through what that end-time will look like. Is it going to be a new age where it's like in Star Wars and the religion like that, the Force being with us and sort of elevating to being sort of godlike, Or is it going to be the one that God is, is promising where all of the forces that rebelled will be removed from 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 the world so so what happens to the humans that don't follow There's, it, it's follow who jesus's prophecy or, or christianity okay yeah so i mean you have to understand that first of all israel and judah will be brought back into the covenant in the last three and a half years so those who had faith and those who are still here, they have a separate destiny that comes together in the bride just before the Armageddon. So God will remember his covenant there. For the rest of the world, you're given a choice. 
um, and to, to, to accept what Jesus has said or not, accept what God has said or not. And for those who didn't have the opportunity to hear God's word, there is a, uh, I would call it an exception rule for them. I know a lot of Christians don't like to look at this passage in the book of Romans, but they'll be judged on what was in their heart and how they acted on that. So the spirit of how they acted on what they knew to be good or not, even though they may not have known. So there's, there is an opening there for people who um, didn't know Jesus and didn't have the Bible taught through them throughout our history. And that's a long history that they too could be uh, taken into, in, into eternity as well. For the humans who choose um, not to accept the word and haven't been, let's say, as good a people as they ought to have been and didn't know about the word uh, or, and knew about the word, then there's two divisions. One will go to the second death which is sort of final. There's a resurrection of the dead at the end of the millennium, and some will be judged to eternity uh, to to go into eternity. We talked about in the Book of Romans, some to the second death. But there are some that are reserved to burn in the lake of fire forever. And how far it expands from what we know about what happens in the end time with those who take the mark of the beast and or worship Antichrist and or worship Satan in the last three and a half years, those for sure are going to the lake of fire where the angels went and the demons are going, right? And they will burn forever. Uh, eternal punishment. It's the lake of fire. It's uh, the, the word that's used in the Bible for hell is a horrible translation because it conflates three different locations that are... <laughs> maybe related, but different. Like you have Hades, which is Sheol, which is the underworld. You have the abyss, which is the bottomless pit, which is the prison in the underworld for these, the worst of the demons and the uh, worst of the angels and the impassioned ones and will be a prison for Satan throughout the millennia, throughout the millennium. And then you have the lake of fire that's in a different location. That's in the darkness somewhere. There's no specific location provided. So I think we, we, we need to understand what all of those options are, whether or not you're Christian or not. You need to dig into the world, dig into the information that's out there and make a decision because no decision is still a decision. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I like to talk about in a lot of the shows is I will talk about how polytheism talks about these different topics. So it's out there, just seen through a polytheist lens, whether it's prophecy or it's prehistory. Interesting. Is there any difference? You know, there's, there's also in confusion between behind Satan, actually. Like, who is Satan? You know, like there's, always, like, like there's Lucifer, there's Satan. In the pagan world, there's Baphomet. So, so in, in Pan, there's all these different deities that are yeah. associated with Satan. Yeah, and some of them shouldn't be, like Baphomet and uh, Pan or Cern or Cernonos, Bacchus. Those are all satyr goat type of gods. And it's either an order of gods or it's one specific god. The gods, first of all, are the fallen angels from a Christian perspective. 
And so Azazel, who is the leader of the Watchers in the Book of Enoch, is the one who is the one who's going to come out of the abyss in Revelation 9 as a bad man Apollyon, which is a title of destroyer because he was the destroyer of the antediluvian world, teaching war and knowledge and knowledge that wasn't to go to humankind, along with other ones that were underneath him. He would be like the chief of the watchers, mm -hmm. right? Under Satan. So he, and, and the book of Enoch also talks about these lieutenants, so to speak, under Satan is also called Satan's. But they're not the Satan or Ha Satan, as it would be in, in, in Hebrew. And they talk about talks about both. So you need to understand that the pantheon of gods are underneath Satan. And so there's a God that's always above the pantheon. Now, Satan, he's a unique individual. He is more powerful than any of the other angels. And he and there are many orders and kinds of angels, and he will be one that is encompassing several kinds that's how unique and powerful he was and so we're told in ezekiel 28 that he's a cherubim and this cherubim walks amongst the fiery stones except cherubims don't walk amongst the fiery stones they cover the throne as part of the watchers and there's three groups of watchers there's the archangels they are the cherubim which um cover the throne and in the vision of Ezekiel 1 and 10 uh, in the vision is actually pulling God's throne. And you have the Ophanim, which are the ones within the wheels. And the word Ophan comes is the word for wheel that's used in Ezekiel 1 and 10. And you get two different kinds of cherubim that are talked about. One in the wheels, one that is around the throne and pulls the chariot, and you have the seraphim, which are the fiery serpent angels, which were the ministers before God, in the altar, in 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 the burning stones, as are described in Isaiah six, and they are serpent-faced gods or angels, and six wings, and they're very much a fiery individual. So roll that forward to what that means for Satan, as he is described in Revelation 12, he is the red dragon, red as in fiery, as it comes out of Greek, and a dragon as in a six-winged serpent, as it was known in antiquity, and he's also called the serpent. So he's a cherubim, and he is a serpent, and that's okay. So now we know that he's seraphim, and that he's cherubim, and that he was performing with the seraphim before the altar, and he has nine jewels, so he's also high priest. And then as you get into the New Testament, he's also referred to as like an archangel. And then after his fall, he becomes ha-satan, the adversary, and diabolos in Greek, which is the chief of, chief of the angels and the chief of the demons. And also as he's described as, as uh, a devil in Revelation 12 and 20 as well. So this is, and he could have had many other titles that we don't know of, but he was the greatest creation after uh, the spirit and the word, hmm. and he rebelled. So what happens with the resolution, particularly with that high priest aspect of it, because the high priest was not replaced in heaven. And so with as we see the completion of the end time, it's going to have a replacement of that high priest through the Melchizedek order that Jesus is part of and was resurrected into. So it's part, you know, God, part man that will live forever, that will 
be the high priest, just as he's called Joshua, or which is where Jesus comes from, as you take that back in Greek to Joshua, and Joshua is described in the book of Zechariah. So where does Lucifer come into this? Because a lot of people oh, refer to yeah. Lucifer yeah. sort of too. Yeah, as, as the, you know, I've always confused Lucifer with Satan to some extent. But I know well, Lucifer is, is supposed to be like, you know, the morning star, the bringer of light. This almost seems like in some ways the opposite of what Satan would be. Well, he, at what before his fall, I mean, he was perfect, right? Mm-hmm. He was the emblematic of beauty. And, but, you know, his pride corrupted him. So the word Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12, that's when he wanted to raise his throne to heaven. It is, the Hebrew is Hail El Ben Shakar. Hail El, son of the morning. In Italy, ancient Rome, uh, Lucifer is a derivative word for Venus. Okay, because Venus can be a morning star, mm-hmm. and it's also for six months of the year, the evening star. It's the same one, just wherever it fits as the celestial procession sort of continues. And so you have Lucifer being inserted into the King James Version Bible. And I know people aren't Christians, don't like me when I say this, but it is. It shouldn't be there. You have an Italian word inserted for a Hebrew word into the English language. And Lucifer is the god of the Freemasons, the god of the Gnostics. They also call him the great architect of the universe. And they have a few other titles for, for Satan as well. This is, this is Satan. And Hail El is likely one of Satan's names. It ends in El, just as Michael does, just as Gabriel does, just as Azazel does. Angels, as they're known in Hebrew, will have God or an angel, which is El at the end, and a description about who they are as part of their name, right? So, uh, Hillel would be who Satan is and who Lucifer is. And we know this is the same individual because in Luke, um, uh, in Luke 10, you have uh, Jesus saying he saw Satan fall from heaven just as Lucifer or Hillel did in Isaiah 14. Same individual, different name, title. Like I said, he could have many names. And some people think that Gadrael is also a name for Satan because in the book of Enoch, you have Gadrael that was in Eden. And the mm-hmm. only other angel that we see in Eden was the cherubim that's talked about in Ezekiel 28, right? Also, in Wall of there, God, there's sort of like the pre-Eden story too, where there's Lilith. Does Lilith fall anywhere into this? Well, that's not really a pre-Eden story. That would be a post-Eden story because, mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, I guess depending or, or during Eden, depending on how you want to interpret the Lilith thing, because she's going to be uh, from that mythos, a consort of Adam, correct? Right. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. And so one would think that that might be in Eden, except that the no children are born in Eden. Right. They're born from a Christian perspective. So, and uh, Adam and Lilith would have had had sons, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, depending on your perspective, is that during or after? But certainly not pre, uh, okay. because Eden is there, and then Adam is put in in all the accounts. Now, where the uh, mythos comes from is the Sumerian 
pantheon, the Sumerian religion that is handed down through the Akkadians and the Babylonians. And when the southern kingdom is taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years, they're going to be immersed in the Mesopotamian polytheist religion being exiles there and, and basically slaves. And so that's when the, the uh, from a historical records perspective that matches up with the timing where that Lilla story comes into the Judaic story from a polytheist portion of Judaism that we would know as Kabbalism today, one uh -huh. of many mystical sects, right? And so that's where that comes from. And so Lilith is has a history of either being a demigod or a god in the Sumerian um, religion and and mythologies or histories. So you you get Tiamat, which is a parent god, um, that would be like Anu as one of the parent gods, just as Kronos would be above. Zeus, Kronos being a parent god, Zeus being the offspring god, Anu, Tiamat being parent gods, they also produced offspring gods in, 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 in that religion and in, in history. And so, let's, for example, Anu produces Anki and Enlil, which people are probably more familiar with than Tiamat, which is a Leviathan type of god, as it's described. She, uh, is is the offspring of Lilith in some of the accounts. So it's a Lilith is either going to be an offspring god or uh, an offspring of a human and a parent god, because the parent gods and the offspring gods both created demigods with human females and human males. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure which she is. I think more demigod than anything. And so she would have been like a giant, right? She would have been like the Nephilim. She would have been like the heroes. She would have been like the Anunnaki giants. Would have been like the Milesi in China or the, you know, all the different giants around the world, but just a female one. And so that's where that sort of overlay comes in. And also understand that the Sumerian tradition has an Eden-like account. Yeah. So you have this polytheist lens coming into it, right? Mm -hmm. But that's the story that take, that, that comes back. So it depends on, what you think is the history of Eden, is it the polytheist version or is it the monotheist version that sort of comes down through the Masoretic texts and, uh, and the Old Testament that we have today? Or was it more mixed with the polytheist version? Hmm. So I know that was a long, long answer, but it's, it's right. not, wasn't a simple question. <laughs> like one of the other things too, like for example, like, you know, we're talking about Jesus, Jesus' prophecy for the end of days. Um, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about Jesus is that there's been so many Jesus-like characters, such as Osiris, Odin, Jesus, um, and I'm sure there's more that I just can't think of right now. But they were all have similar stories of, of you know, spreading a message, um, promising eternal life, and being crucified in resurrection. So, yeah. And, so how do we know which one is the truth or are they all the same dude? Well, you have to remember Osiris is an offspring god, mm -hmm. right? So they're immortal. You can't kill... Uh, more. 
but there is kind of a resurrection story there with Osiris, but actually gets sort of torn to pieces and somehow comes back and mates with another goddess, Isis, to produce mm-hmm. Horus. Um, but those are those are still all gods. They're beings produced from gods, not demigods, not partially human at all. Um, probably what would be more closer to it, which would be Mithras. Because Odin is like the parent, one of the parent gods in, in Norse mythology. Right. So again, it's got a completely different context to, you know, taking physical bodies, which they can, and their spirit that they're originally, right? Mm-hmm. So they, you can have your physical body killed, but your spirit's not going to, and they could take a physical form of their choosing at any point in time. So to get into the, uh, uh, what we would call a resurrection or a reincarnation, you need to be into a human or a demigod, the offspring. So half human, half god, or two-thirds god, and one-third human, as some of the polytheist versions like the Epic of Gilgamesh would classify Gilgamesh or Apishtun or any of those characters. And so myth, myth, Mithraism comes out of Zoroastrianism, and Mithraism is the one of the more popular religions of Rome at the time of the rise of Christianity, and Mithraism is the is the polytheist religion that Constantine is going to merge Christianity with, and you see a lot of that that's still there today because he was trying to create a empire religion that would unite the empire. So he's trying to pacify sort of both the monotheist and, and the polytheist and Mithra. Is, is a god that was born on, you guessed it, December 25. <laughs> <laughs> he is, you know, a god uh, that uh, supposedly resurrected after after three days. Mm-hmm. And you could you could slay a demigod. And a demigod has an immortal spirit. It has the spirit from heaven, but it has the physical body of, of the world. And humans have a spirit but it goes to sleep when you die. The spirit of a demigod does not. It does not go to heaven because it's an illegal counterfeit spirit created by fallen angels um, or gods, and it doesn't go to sleep. So it's going to either be sent to the abyss because they're part of the terrible ones that were slain on the earth and locked in there with their procreators until the end time, or they're going to wander the earth as demon spirits. And so any resurrection that you have that people will try and conflate with reincarnation are two different things because resurrection doesn't happen until the sequence of the resurrections that begin in the end time for for humans. But you have these rituals that the demigods had because they knew their spirit wasn't going to die. They they thought themselves as gods on earth and they're the divine representatives on earth and their parents were, were partly the gods, and they had this immortal spirit. So they knew that what would happen to their spirit afterwards. So to avoid going directly to the abyss, they did all of these rituals within these mystical religions that they would have received to guide themselves through the underworld. And the abyss is in the underworld, but it's a location that's larger than the than the abyss. So it's it's an area where you can go back and forth between portals, as the Ugaritic texts talk about as the most clear and specific talk uh, talk about that with the Rephaim, the post-Diluvian giants going back between the portals and Gil, 
uh, Gilgal Raphaim, the wheel of the giants or the wheel of the gods, has, or the wheel of the spirits, I mean, has like over a hundred domains, which means portals that they would have traveled back and forth between the underworld and here with. And so the rituals were designed and the knowledge were designed to help guide them through the underworld, not to go to the abyss, and certainly not to the lake of fire. And so that's why you have all of that coming out, whether it's a, the, Egypt, the Egyptian text or whatever, you know, riding on boats through the underworld and being guided so that nothing ill happens to them, because mm. that spirit's going to roam. So that's the reincarnation aspect that they're trying to get back into the physical world. And they won't be able to until the end time with a body that they're not having to suppress a host in. When they suppress a host, that's a demon possession. And they're like in dry places when they're roaming the earth, as the Bible talks about. And the only way they can physically interact is, is to, and, and to rest is to enter a human body. So until you get that oiketarian, that dwelling place for the spirit in the physical world, which is the soul and the body versus the spirit, and the spirit goes in and goes into that oiketarian till one is produced and we have the technology to let them do that, they're going to roam and possess people. So that is not the resurrection where you from where you go to sleep and then you resurrect at your time, whether you're part of the first fruits, whether or not you are part of uh, those who are martyred, whether or not you are those who are asleep when Jesus comes, whether or not you're part of the ones that um, will be beheaded for not taking the mark or are killed for not worshiping Antichrist and and or Satan in the last three and a half years, that's part of the resurrections where that spirit will come up, just as the spirit will come up with the resurrection of the dead for those who aren't part of those first part of the resurrections and will be judged either to eternity or to the second death. So when people die, are we going to heaven right now or are we going no. to sleep? We're going to sleep. If you're human, you're going to go to sleep. We're told so many times in the Bible that you sleep. And even when Jesus uh, went to Lazarus, um, he said, you know, Lazarus is just sleeping. It's a sleep-like state. Um, so he rose them, rose, them, you know, rose up Lazarus from the dead from a state of sleep. But whether or not uh, you're talking about the time of the rapture, it says even when he comes to take those who are still alive will be transformed formed into this new form and into heaven in a, in a twinkling of an eye, so will those who died in Christ but were not martyred will also rise because they're sleeping. So it's, so when he comes, those who sleep will rise, right? You get this term used over and over, Old Testament and New Testament. But so, so does that demigods mean, don't sleep. So that, so that means that, like, you know, like now, like, say, like, family members or whatever pass away, they're not really still with us. They're, they're... No, no, but demons will say and have knowledge because they're still about. They will assume that sort of person to deceive people because they're just there to harm humankind. I mean, they were created to destroy humankind. Mm -hmm. are, are... So ghosts, you see ghosts, mm -hmm. you're seeing a demon. Interesting. Um... Yeah. Is Satan truly evil, or is he just pissed off at God because he wanted his own dominion? Well, he, he certainly wasn't created evil. He, became, he would have descended into that. But 
there's a there was a turning point where he may not have been like let's say totally evil when he rebelled to when he became completely evil there's a transition there so once you start to say i'm going to destroy humankind you become a monster right and all of those who were doing the same thing that they wanted to destroy humankind they're convicting themselves as they go along with the crimes against humanity that they did so it's that transition i think it was for all of them um and if you look at the oath that is talked about in the book of enoch um you know hera and athena that they're going to carry it out to the end knowing the consequences of what they're going to do when they're going to create the giants to destroy humankind they understood completely so a lot of people have asked me well do you think some of them regretted the decision and i'm thinking you know sure at a lot of points of time they probably did regret it i don't know whether or not god was open to letting them come back i think so but there's a point in time where it crossed and that point in time was the resurrection of jesus and at that point in time all the ones who whether or not they came back or not if they didn't come back they would be sentenced to going to the lake of fire so there's no hope of god and satan ever resolving their issues no they're never going to partner up and no because again as you said we know the end after the war he goes to the lake of fire and he's going to burn there forever hmm. in the outer darkness wherever that is interesting you know um so so you, we were talking you mentioned a little bit about reincarnation um you know, one one of the beliefs i believe of uh, like jewish kabbalists is they, they they kind of go along with they the do. reincarnation realm they do and even they're polytheists though and, and even, <laughs> <They should. laughs> that's why it's polytheism mm -hmm. <laughs> but in some places in the Bible, I think it sort of it sounds like it's talking about reincarnation. You'd have to show me the verse because I've not come across anything that way. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I can't. I know. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I just <laughs> believe me. If I if, if there was one that I thought that you were referencing, mm -hmm. I would talk about it. Yeah, I don't know which one it was off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm not that. Well, there, <laughs> As I think about it, I mean, I wouldn't know, I don't think this is reincarnation, because that's kind of like evolving into godhood, right? Mm -hmm. And only demigods want to, you know, have that ability to try and somehow, with their immortal spirit, to have that physical body in the world, and that's what they're really trying to get back. But there is a verse in uh, a passage in the New Testament that's called Abraham's Bosom, where... Uh, it's talking about going to the underworld where the dead are, but that's not really reincarnation. And it's also a parable. So it's about, you know, parable, you know, isn't something you put doctrine on. It's the message of the parable because it's a story that's understood by everybody, whether it's true or not. Um, not and not thought to be, you know, something factual. It's like a moral of the story, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the message that Jesus was talking about, you know, in Abraham's bosom, that even if somebody came back from the dead, you still wouldn't listen to them. Mm -hmm. And Jesus came back from the dead, and people still didn't listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> How about, um, like, during the Crusades, where people were committing genocide, yeah. Because they believed in Jesus. Yeah. They believed in these prophecies. They believed in all this. 
but yet they're going out committing these atrocious acts of, of murder, mass murder. Where do they fall into this? Like, like are these people that, that I mean, in my opinion, those are people that should go to hell and for, for eternity. Yeah. Um, well, first but, of but all, according I, to I the mean, rules, it sounds like they get it now. Yeah. Well, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I mean, I leave judgment for God. And mm. God will judge knowing what's in their heart and what they did. I will tell you this. It is, I will go this far uh, on, on the Christians, and then I'll talk about the context of the scenario, which is really important to understand history. Um, what the Roman Church did in their inquisitions and other crimes is not Christian. It goes against everything the Bible teaches. Right. Okay. And we, no one should ever condone that. You cannot force a religion of choice on people. You have to choose. Otherwise, you don't have the faith. You can't. If you're not spiritually invested in it, it's a lie. Right? So you have to choose that. And you have to choose that every day. What's going on at that time is typical world power. Things that... Christians ought not to be involved in. But the Roman Church is the most powerful organization in the world at that time and completely corrupt at that time. There's some good people in it, no doubt about it, but much of the leadership is corrupt. And there is another religion that is rising out of the ashes of the persecution that the Roman Church did to many of the groups, that, uh, like the Manichaeans, for example. Uh, at the time of the state-sponsored religion. So even though you got Nephraism that is sort of wedded into it and a lot of the symbolism, they are adopting a legalistic persecution of everybody who doesn't swear on what's in the Bible. And again, you're not supposed to do oaths. So the Manichaeans and many other groups and the Cistercians and things like that, they'll actually go underground within the Roman Church and create monastic orders, which are all polytheists within the, the Roman Church. I know a lot of people won't like me to say that, but it's another rabbit hole we can go into afterwards. But understand that this is a church that is already taken in a lot of things not permitted in the Bible, a lot of the idolatry and assuming too much power. And at that time, as you, as you progress... The polytheist groups that went underground for fear of persecution are starting to get stronger. And they're transplanted back into Europe. Uh, and, I, and I document this throughout my, in my book so that people can follow the progression of it from the, uh, you know, groups like the Paulicians and many others that are going to go uh, and be the representative group of the Bogomils from the East. And then they're going to transplant back into Europe as the Albigensians, which that Crusade is uh, also talked about, the Albigensian Crusade, and the Cathars. This religion is growing in such popularity because it is being supported by most of the monarchies underneath, because that's their true belief, and that they're going to overthrow the Roman Church. They're getting that powerful. So war breaks out. And typically, I mean, again, this is kind of from a world purview is, is you can't have two primary religions that want absolute power and won't compromise whatsoever. 
So they go to war. It's just that the Roman church won. Would have been just as vicious on the other side if the Albigensians and Cathars would have won. Mm. But you can't look at what the Roman church did and justify that in any which way or form. That was pure evil. Would the same be true for witch burning? Sure. We're here for, you know, to learn to choose God. We're not here to murder people. And particularly the New Testament is, 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 is set at a sort of a higher example on that than the story of Israel. It's a completely different sort of story that happens with, with Israel. Um, but again, you don't see that carry over um, to want to have to destroy uh, to, to war with people unless war is committed against them going forward. So once they gain the land of, of, the, of the land of the covenant, it is a scenario where um, they're not choosing to go to war with people. People are choosing you know, to go, go to war with them, and probably for good reason, because they expropriated the land they were in. But <laughs> um, you have to understand, these weren't just people. These were in the time of Joshua and Moses, and then up to the time of King David, these were nations of giants and hybrid giants. And so I cover a lot of that in the book, and I, I'm going into great detail on that in, in, in the sequel. And they squatted the land, waiting for Israel to become a nation, and then to wipe them from the face of the earth, to stop the Messiah from coming. And that land that they were squatting on as it talks about, not only in the Bible, but in other religions, the whole world was divided up under the counsel of gods. That's Psalm 82 in, in, in the Bible. And this is the council that Satan sits over because he runs this world for a time. And the world is divided into 70 nations before and after the flood, as Deuteronomy 32 talks about. And the world and the land is divided into those 70 nations with land and possession assigned to it. And God, that's why he gives the land to Israel. That was the land reserved for him. And he let all the other angels that had rebelled have the rest until in time. But that land was reserved for him and coming Israel, who was there to bring about the Messiah. So they were there waiting for them. And they declared oaths to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And you had wars starting with them even before they entered into the land, beginning with the Amalekim and uh, the Anakim and uh, Canaanites uh, after the 40 years. And then when they marched up um, west or east of the Jordan with the, uh, the nations of, of uh, with the Amorites and the Rephaim in the Mount Hermon regions and also the Medians. And so, but certainly when they crossed the land, they were there to wipe or have the nations that were there leave, and they made proclamations for them to leave. But, of course, they weren't going to leave because that's where they lived. And there was going to be only one winner coming out of that. And that's what that whole conquest of the Promised Land is about, is it's taking back the land that was stolen uh, and, and squatted by the offspring of the fallen angels after the flood, waiting to wipe out the nation that was going to bring about the Messiah. Are there any more giants left, or have they 
maybe mutated in some way and are living among us still, but just not as giants. Yeah, if there are giants around, we don't really get good proof. Not to say that maybe some organizations don't have proof, like with that Afghanistan giant um, incident that happened, and they had the people on there on coast to coast with Steve Quayle, and, you know, very, 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 very powerful sort of story and the details and the accuracy of the details, but not really any more evidence to that. We don't know whether or not they're in stasis or not. So we don't know whether there are those actual monstrous type of giants that are still around here or not. But what we do know for sure is, is that there are descendants of those giants and those are the royal bloodlines. And royale comes from, as it comes through its etymology, it means the kings of God. Roy, as in king, A-L, as in angel or a god, A-L, it would be like the Sumerian transliteration of E-L. It could also be I-L or I-L-L-U or A-L-L-A-H. There's lots of Middle East transliterations of the same word. These are the bloodlines of the Raphaim. And they set up their dynasties, both before and after the flood, Nephilim uh, before the flood, Raphaim afterwards, and they usurped the kingships, and they intermarried amongst themselves as much as possible for two reasons. One, because um, they wanted to keep those bloodlines pure, um, and they used that as a divine right to rule that they were given by their procreators. And that um, there was another issue with them because they had a fertility issue. So now they got to bring in sort of outside less pure bloodlines to produce more and or prevent blood diseases, right? Because like you get those royal bloodline diseases like hemophiliac disease and Habsburg jaw disease. That's from too much of that intermarriage between the royals when they don't get enough human bloodlines in there to, to stop those diseases. So when you start to dilute over time, even though they're, they're intermarrying all the way through the generations and create all the different dynasties around the world that ruled in the feudal system that they set up, you're going to lose more and more and more of not only what they originally looked like, but their size. And if you look at the kings that were in the ancient times, they're based on their size. You know, like in, in Mesopotamia, even after the flood, like Lugalbanda, who is the father of, of Gilgamesh. Lugal means big man or giant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so they, they were, and, and, and Gilgamesh was said to be 19 feet tall using a royal cubit and seven feet wide. I mean, these weren't just eight foot hybrids. These were purebred Raphaim after the flood. And these are the bloodlines that come down, down through history. So I think those are the ones that are still in place today. And the royals keep their genealogies all the way back into prehistory. And in their coat of arms, you're going to see a taciturn story of their genealogies. And all of those things represent uh, their sort of, I guess, would be more of an overarching genealogy going back to uh, different strains that come from an, an angelic being. So when people say God saved the queen, they're saying God saved the Nephilim, which is almost a complete oxymoron. Yeah, because in polytheism, there's still one chief God, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what they're saying when they say God saved the queen. 
They're talking about not the God of the Bible. And that's how they sort of interact in the world with the veneer of Christianity, but underneath is this polytheism. And on the, uh, on the uh, Windsor uh, coat of arms, they have a, a sort of a mixture of the Hanover coat of arms and the Stuart coat of arms. And the Hanover coat of arms had two unicorns. Um, and uh, typically on what you see on the English, when you get a unicorn and a lion, which is very much what the Stuart one was as well. And so if you look at that from what are they representing in that? There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on, but you've got those two. You have the unicorn, which is understood two ways. One is being the stallion that the Nephilim before the before the flood rode on and into battle. And it was, you know, a, a giant type of horse, and it was a bit of a chimera type of individual, so something that was created. But, you know, in, in the... Uh, Let's, we'll use the Greek example here, and you have Apollo's chariot, or Zeus's chariot being pulled by, and it's shown in two ways, horses or unicorns, because they would have a horn. Mm -hmm. That is an allegory for a specific kind of angel, and we talked about it earlier, as seen in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, with the cherubim that pull the, wheel? the chariot of God. So they're, they're taking that back as an angelic being, as being one of the trubum. And the lion is a god like Nergal in the Bible. Uh, and he was a lion-faced god who produced like the lion-like men of Moab and, and, and Gadites and Arioch and all of these lion warriors that come out of Mesopotamia and in Egypt. And you have gods named like Sekhmet and Mahis and all of them have gods by, you know, a lion type of god that produced giants. And that's reflecting two different bloodlines in there. And then the, all the other ones, those, those are the main ones, will have other meanings in behind that are in the coat of arms. So they take their bloodlines back to the Raphaim, uh, who are produced by the Balim on Mount Hermon, who, whom they take their divine right to rule from. And the stewards, that was their model. They had the divine right to rule. So, I, I mean, obviously, I think mean, the queen is the only one bloodline that, you know, I can royalty that I'm aware of. I, I, was trying, I mean, I guess there's, like, others that, um, like, just that whole, you know, like, like the whole um, Da Vinci Code thing with the, yep. um, what was that name? Montclair? Sinclair. Oh, the, the Sinclairs, yeah. Yeah. Is that a royal bloodline? Yes. So the St. Clairs um, were the French version of St. Clair. It's a, sort of the English transliteration. And so there's a battle partner with Hugh de Payon whose name is St. Clair. Uh, and of the St. Clairs of Normandy. And St. Clair is one of the silent founders to the Knights Templar with de Payon and Anjou which produced the Plantagenet and the Bouillon, all taking their bloodlines back to the Merovingians and back to the Nephilim, and according to uh, their belief to uh, the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, also scioned into that, that bloodline. And so the St. Clair bloodline, um, which, by the way, as, as St. Clair's, they're going to take in the Knights Templar after the fall in 1307 to start Freemason. 
That's where that family comes from, right? So the St. Clairs changed their name to the name of the treaty that is signed between the Norse and the French in 911 AD, um, the Treaty of St. Clair. Um, and their name previous to that was Rollo. And so this is Rollo of Norway that expropriates Normandy for the Norse. And Rollo takes his bloodline back to Odin. So you have those different sort of bloodlines that are in there, but the St. Clairs are going to intermarry with all of these other bloodlines of nobility in France and then in England, scioning those different bloodlines. And in fact, uh, William the Conqueror is from that royal bloodline, just as the St. Clairs were of that invading bloodline, just as de Bruce was, who becomes the king of Scotland who wins his freedom from the lost, uh, let's say, authority over the king of England because you have the Plantagenet and Anjou that are going to succeed as the, as a royal bloodline over the William Conqueror Rollo bloodline, say in about 1200, roughly dirty on the timetable. So did that make some sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay. How about Rothschilds? Is there anything to that one? Well, they, they are originally a Jewish um, family uh, named Bauer out of uh, Germany. And they're created as in the same sort of agenda as uh, Freemasonry is because after the fall of the Knights Templar in 1307, you, the banking that the Templars controlled within the Roman church, it needed to be replaced. And so outside the church, the Bauer family is going to be moved up out of Germany to do the banking for the secret societies and the royal families. And the upper levels of the secret societies, and I may have talked about in this past, are all, all royal bloodlines. What we see at Freemasonry, mm -hmm. that's at the bottom of the trunk of, of the hierarchy of the tree of, of, of secret societies. And so they're going to change their name to Rothschilds in 1811, 1812, when they set up the London Bank. Which means, you know, Red Shield and it's got a whole bunch of other occult meanings. But they have been intermarrying into the bloodlines because that's what is, that's what is done within that bloodline culture is that you need to intermarry with ennobled bloodlines to create increased ennobled bloodlines throughout the generations to move up in the hierarchy. And so they've been doing that ever since. They're very, very visible, which which tells you that they're not of the original thirteen families. For example, they're just they're 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 a main they're a player, but they're a visible player, and they're not the ones working control in the background. Mm -hmm. So I guess the same would be true of the Bilderbergs, um, to a certain degree. But here's here's where it gets interesting on on that. I'm, and it always surprises me at times that they'll pick names like the Bilderberger organization because. That's going to have two parts to the organization. And it's going to have new money at the bottom. So you get like Clinton going over there, Gates and all the new money that's coming in. And they get their orders once a year from the upper level of the Bilderberger organization to carry out their instructions for the year. The upper level, you have the royal families that are running it. And so they would be typically answering from the Bilderbergers 
uh, from that level, they would likely be coming and answering at the level of the Committee of 300, which is just above the Rosicrucians. Okay, and the Committee of 300 is 300 families of Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of bloodlines in there. But those are the ones that are going to be sitting in that, just as the Club of Rome, which has divided the world up into 10 groups of nations or spheres of influence, which you're really starting to hear that term, spheres of influence, uh, being used. And I've been using that for years because that's their language that they want to impose on the world. That was set up in the late 60s to bring about that end time 10 groups of nations, trading blocks, spheres of influence. They would also answer into the committee of 300 as well, because again, you have uh, pure bloods that are running it with lower pure bloods that were at the bottom. And the Club of Rome, I heard when I was growing up quite a bit, a little bit on the CBC News, I'm from Canada, because Pierre Trudeau, who married a Sinclair, um, a bloodline uh, Sinclair, uh, was part of the Club of Rome when it was started, and they would film them going into these Club of Rome meetings, and then at a certain point, they just stopped that because <laughs> they didn't want that as public as, as what they wanted. So the Bilderbergers, getting back to it, is is they are part of the bloodlines at the top, um, and but understand that they're always bringing in new money at the bottom to help them do the thing. So they're yes, they would be part of the bloodlines, but you'll have the Council of uh, 33 that's above that, which would be more of the uh, more primary families, but then there's the 13 families above that. And then you would also have around the world, and this one's a little harder to get information on, but it's thought, and from the little information I can get on it, is that there's also 13 families around the world from which the European 13 families would have more than one family involved in that 13. Hmm. How about Wells Fargo? That's well, a bank. Yeah, but well, <laughs> yeah. But, but also I mean, not just the <laughs> bank though. But there's, I mean, Wells Fargo has like a pretty interesting history in the United States. Yeah, you know, um, and they also have connections to secret societies. Yes. Well, banking is was basically funded by the Rothschilds in the United States, and they're subservient to them even to this day and it's it's uh, what they would call it and i cover this off in my book as well they're the stable of agents that were working the agenda that they thought the united states was created for which was the templar dream to be a role model for world government where you have one central government but you have all of these individual states that are working together and to be a platform to help bring that about hmm. Yeah, because I found those stories of like Wells Fargo and Morgan Stanley, you know, pretty yeah. interesting on how they were trying to do things. I think Wells Fargo was like originally like the stagecoach company, I believe, and also yep. started making guns. Yeah, which you know obviously plays a huge role in our government now is the yep. that um, whole uh, NRA type of thing. Yeah, basically in the beginning, if you take any of the original sort of successful families that went either into banking or with Carnegie into steel or mm-hmm. Pullman's into railroads, they're all funded by the Rothschilds through a few key families in, in, that are, that, that are in the, be- that are, you know, funded in the beginning. So there's a bit of a hierarchy there, you know, and the Rockefellers got funded in that same sort of manner as well. Mm. So did the, as, as did um, JP Morgan. 
So all those fall under Roth. So the United States is basically owned by Rothschilds. Well, the banking end is. Um, well, you own the sure, banks. You pretty has, much own everything. And the oil companies are. And most of the, you know, the corporations, they own most. But, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of that larger group of oligarchs, right, that control the corporations. And we're seeing their true colors today. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're extraordinary globalists. And their extraordinary national socialism on a global scale. It, so, and once that national socialism starts coming together, that's going to be one of the signs of the end of times. Yeah, you can see what they're doing with that today, with the um, intolerance that they're showing, and you know, controlling speech. They're already asserting that and inserting things that if you. Uh, don't if you say things that we don't want you to say, you can't use things like PayPal or you can't, you know, all sorts of things that they're not going to do business with you. It's starting to come about. We're starting to see the seeds of that starting to grow today. So globalism, global nationalism is something that, you know, is all of darks on a grand scale, controlling most of the industry, leaving a very, very small little piece for small private enterprise. The corporations are a perversion of free enterprise, by the way, and I come out of free enterprise in the corporate world, and that they will have a working class that will be subservient underneath that. And everything from the religious caste and the ruling caste and the merchant class, which is, you know, from the oligarchic aspect, controls the the upper end of it. It's that old feudal system that they had in place before the start of the New World, which kind of didn't go all in the direction that they want, because they have all of these feisty people that are saying in the United States and Canada, like, you know, we don't want that old world stuff. But they still have control in the background. And when they're ready, they'll eventually just take away true democracy, which they're kind of leaning in that direction today. They only want one political party today. Mm. They want it set up like Russia. They want it set up like China. It's almost like uh, the censorship of Joe Rogan is the beginning of the apocalypse. It's one piece of it. Absolutely. You know, just just something as simple as as the truckers in Canada on on the protests that they're doing. And GoFundMe takes their money away. Right, they're labeled as um, resurre- uh, conspiratorial seditionists. What's what do they call January sixth? Uh, um. re- anyways, it's a legal term of, <laughs> Insurrection. of treason. Insurrectionists. Yeah, that's what they're calling this peaceful thing. I mean, but they control the media, they control the money flow, they control the industry, and they're starting to squeeze down just as they squeeze down on. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, the pestilence for pain. I mean, it's, it's a globalist intention across the borders to exert that control. They haven't got complete control yet, but they're working at it. And that's why I don't get ahead of end time prophecy is because they have, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of things yet to put in place. But we see that evil coming. We, we're seeing the creation of, of a subhuman class of people that they're going to create genocide with because they don't deserve to be in this world of these woke people. Hmm. 
one of the things that I was, you know, just, you know, one person that sort of doesn't fit into the whole scheme. And, and, and I wonder, you know, like, the reason that's the reason I so many people don't like him is Elon Musk. I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that question. He's one of the people that doesn't really seem to fall into this whole scheme. And a lot of people do not like him is Elon Musk. Oh, Elon Musk. Yeah, because he's a bit of a, uh, a rebel, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and uh, I, what he want, I think what he wants, and there's, there's a lot of people that are out there like him, but he is probably the most successful. And so he gets a lot of attention. He wants a lot of what? this global world and global society has to offer as an oligarch. He doesn't want it to go into monsterism. Mm -hmm. Trouble is, is you can't stop, stop monsterism once it gets on a roll. So they'll eat him up or he'll convert. I hope not. <laughs> but you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who would, who would want to hope for that? But anybody who goes against the growing one political belief system mm -hmm. is going to be an enemy of the state. It's going to be as simple as that. It's always difficult to figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in this scenario. You know, it even even when it comes to the churches, because when you look at the yeah. churches, like you know, there's a lot of people out there that'll say, um, you know, the Catholic Church is, is is a part of this whole one world organization. There's they are the. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say maybe you know possibly maybe the Protestants too might be a part of it. Sure, they've been taken over as well. Um, you know, um, the Jewish sects. You know, Certainly sometimes the Kabbalistic, the mystical part is yeah, yeah. They, 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 you have the, this, this globalist end time movement that permeates at all levels, almost all organizations around the world in it. And even in politics. So, I mean, you have to be careful with, you know, I'm kind of anti-left, even though I have a lot of I have a lot of left-wing views. I just don't agree with persecution and taking away free speech and being horrible to people. I mean, I just just fundamentally disagree with all of that. So I, I, I but people will say, well, you know, what about the Republicans? Well, the Republicans have a strong globalist movement and a strong part of the perpetual war group just as much of the left has, right? So anybody, you have to watch what people say and what they do. I mean, if they're globalists, you ought to be suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I just don't vote. <laughs> so, and, and, and again, not that I'm, I'm a Trump fan. I mean, I liked a lot of the things that he did. Um, I don't like the way he handled himself by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, this was a Democrat that moved to the Republican Party that the Republican establishment and globalist movement didn't want, and the whole world grows up to try and destroy him, mm -hmm. right? And that's what happens, and, uh, and I'm not even saying that he didn't do some globalist things, because he did, he but he wasn't marching to their orthodoxy. What, what Trump was trying to do was to have a larger role for America in that globalist infrastructure. That's mm -hmm. all that, and that's what Putin is doing today, and that's what Xi is doing today. And the Europeans are the ones that are saying, no, we don't want that. So watch out for 
again, it's not only the globalists, but watch out who is actually taking orders from the money and the bloodlines that come out of Europe, because they're the puppets that are working things in our end of the world to to push down uh, the new feudal system that was temporarily out of place in the West and to make uh, America, North America and the West heal to the position that the royal bloodlines have assigned it. Hmm. It's amazing that all this has been going on so long right underneath people's yeah. noses and only a few people have been paying attention. And that's just how successful they are at what they're doing. Because they want people dumbed down, right? They don't want them looking at what they're really doing. You know, it was, there's so many examples where, you know, in history where, you know, so, sort of see the sort of globalist movement coming up, you know, whether or not it's free trade or whatever, you know, you have um, people like uh, Clinton and uh, Gretchen at the time running against free trade. And the first thing they do is just double down on it since they get into power. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's like, how, well, that's not what you said. But the point of the matter is, is that it's always moving in that direction, no matter how much you try to stop it. You can delay it. And there's setbacks that happen. But on the other hand, the globalists can't just sort of make it happen. And they don't understand why. There is an ordained time for this to come together. But until the restrainer is removed, you're not going to have all of this come together. It's amazing. Really incredible. So, so when's the next book come out? Well, I'm hoping by summer. Uh-huh. And, and uh, it's going to be, um, I, I'm in on chapter 53 right now. So <laughs> it was going to be a shorter book. It's still going to, I'm going to guarantee it's a smaller book than the first one. So that my shipping costs aren't so much when I send out signed copies, but <laughs> uh, I just can't help myself. It's just, oh, I got to put this in, I got to put that in. But it's, it's, it's going to be part two on the Genesis 6 conspiracy, but more about prehistory and how it connects into prophecy that you need to understand what happened as context in prehistory and the allegories that a lot of prophecy has in it that's defined within that prehistory so you have a better understanding as to what's going to what's going to happen and it's going to be particularly and it's kind of targeted more at christians because what i heard coming back from christians in particular not that they, you know, some are not not that happy that it wasn't a totally Christian book, but I was trying to get people to understand that there, these are similar things that we, that are understood around the world so that they understand that this is, there's two lenses that are being looked at out there in all of the advanced past, past, present, or future. But this one is about, what I learned is, is that Christians don't know much about what's in the Bible. And they don't know much about prehistory or prophecy because... They're not taught that in churches, and they're taught in seminary schools not to teach it. And so it's kind of been sort of suppressed. And so they, they want to know more about how much is actually talked about fallen angels and the hierarchy and the, the details of the giants. That is, there's so much more information in that I ever put in the first book because it was 
too big to get it all in there. Uh-huh. So I'm going quite deep for Christians on saying, here's everything that you need to know about giants, how it relates to the beast kingdoms that present the last, the end time world empire. Um, here's the hierarchy of the, of the angels of the fallen and the, uh, and the uh, loyal ones, and you know, just sort of how, if you understand this in prehistory, this is where it fits in end time prophecy. What I'm not laying out is a chronology or anything like that. That'll be a future book. But one of the things that I believe in, in, in my points in approaching uh, prophecy, you know, which included the two things I talked about earlier in the show in terms of put everything around what Jesus said, not vice versa. Don't leave out the inconvenient verses and don't, you know, don't have a preconceived idea. Just let the verses tell the story is that you need to understand prehistory to understand prophecy as one of the other sort of principles. And that's what I want to sort of provide on this next book. And the next time just absolutely make people's eyes bug out and their stands up on how much it talks about giants throughout the Bible that you're not taught about in church. Hmm. Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) When when it comes to the giants and and the conspiracies and the bloodlines, you're the man. (laughs) Well, and and that's why this book took a different direction, uh, the first one, because I just wanted to write a book about the giants, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But when I started adding in my other passions about you know, history and prehistory and mythology. I knew there was so many different connections that were telling the same story. And the more I dug, the more I found out that, you know, that comes out of the religions and the religions have an end time perspective as well. Hmm. And so I added, I added all of that sort of in it. And this book is the first one that sort of connects most of the important aspects, right? And mm-hmm. unwinds it into a story that we've been part of. We just don't understand what's affecting the world and why it happens the way it does. But this book will teach you that, It'll teach you its history and tell you, because there's one area in there on prophecy, but it's more directional, just sort of to link what happened before and then what these organizations are doing today to bring about the end time. Fascinating. Hopefully I won't be here for it, though. <laughs> Nobody wants to be here for it. Believe me. I mean, and and a lot of Christians, you know, they'll ask me. They'll say, "No, I don't. I don't want to see it. I think we're in the fig tree generation, but it's going to be so horrible. We can't imagine it. We can't imagine how awful it's going to be. And you can't imagine the size of the deception and delusion that's coming. If you think this whole society has been brainwashed today." And being prepared, you have nothing, you have no idea, and nobody does, but we can get an indication of what it might look like that's going to be coming. It is going to be mind-altering, brainwashing, uh, and I would phrase it in what an adept learns at the third degree in the old York right or the 33rd degree in the Scottish right, that if you're not very, very learned on your belief system, and in particular Christians, it's going to turn over every preconceived concept. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and it, it reminds me too, just like of how powerful it is to just have, um, well, one, controlling the education system and what people learn yeah. and distraction. 
those those two things. Yeah, they do a lot. <laughs> yeah, they do a lot. Well, and then when people understand that it was the Royal Society, uh, created by Rosicrucians and Freemasons, and under a charter by a Stuart King in 1662, that was the first beginnings of science and education outside the church that's controlled by what they call themselves the last of the sorcerers mm -hmm. and the first of the scientists and that those education and scientific societies are still under the guidance of the royal society to this day you don't understand anything about our education system or science <laughs> that's true awesome so thanks for coming on today. Um, Thank you. And before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your book? Best way to get a hold of me is on my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's the number6Conspiracy.com. And on there, there's a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters and one read through that table of contents. I'll guarantee you it's going <laughs> to make your hair stand up or say, I got to, <laughs> I got to get that book. Uh, it might be embellishing, but it's, 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 I, I think the table of contents uh, will catch your attention. But I, I put a generous excerpt of every chapter Ooh. on there. So you'll get a good feel for whether it's the right book for you or not. And you can get a signed copy from me off the website. And or you can link over to barnesandnoble.com from the website or to amazon.com or amazon.ca or over to Kindle for the digital version uh, to buy the book. And you can contact me there from a contact the author. So I have a lot of documents I give away for free where I go deeper on um, such things like, uh, um, you know, when we're talking about the unicorn or we're talking about the the St. Clair's, I've got documents on that. People want it. You don't have to buy the book to get it. I give that stuff away for free. Well, so name the topic. I got a document. I'll send it to you. Ask a question. I'll answer it. Uh, and I will get back to you no matter what. It may take me two or three weeks, but I will get back right. to you on it. And the best way to get a hold of me on social media would be on Facebook, on my timeline, or through Messenger. I'm still reevaluating where I want to go on more social media. I collapsed everything else uh, until I can figure out a, uh, a platform that's going to be around. Yeah. A platform it's a that, tricky world for that. That, that, that isn't <laughs> taking down things. We're just saying the word ISIS as in the goddess. And, um, you know, actually has some people on it. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's not happening quickly. But... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I will put a link to your website in the notes of this episode. And, uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, my listeners should be getting the signed copy of your book. Forget about the episode. <laughs> Either way is good for me. So I, 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 you know, most of the books are sold through the publisher and through the retailers, but I do a lot of signed copies as well. So fantastic. Well, thanks for being on. And I'll put the, links in this uh, episode and uh, we'll do it again Perfect. and I'm excited for the next book too it's almost somewhere. yeah I'm really hoping to get it out I got it I got to get it wound out I want it out by summer so it means I got to really you know wind it down I know I know what, so what, what you else got, I want to put you in you have a couple months to write 40 more chapters yeah I'm not going to write that many I'm hoping to keep it to 70 but <laughs> I'm closing in on that number pretty fast <laughs> <laughs> awesome all right. Well, thanks. Terrific.
All right, hang on for one second, and I'm just going to play the outro.